Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I have a very, very special guest today, and I'm with Pastor Kaji Dosha. She's a senior pastor and the first woman to serve in that capacity at the Park Avenue Christian Church, a 212-year-old congregation in Manhattan. She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and of Yale University, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Divinity degree, respectively. She serves on Planned Parenthood Federation of America's Clergy Advocacy Board, and she takes on so many other activist roles that I'll discover in this episode. Her sermons and public speeches have been featured often in media, as many of the issues she advocates for have substantial nationwide impact and relevance. Hello, hello, Pastor Kaji. How are you doing? Hello, what an honor it is to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm very, very humble. For full disclosure, a dear friend, a common friend of ours introduced us. And uh, when when she said, do you think you would be interested? And I say, I'm always interested in speaking with people that, uh, you know, have such an interesting journey, such a big mission. And just the fact that you're a pastor, I mean, and that you, part of your mission is to inspire others to prompt change. I mean, that's it's really an honor to have you here. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your origin story and where I'm sure somewhere rooted in that childhood, there was a call for really, really higher service. So I'm, I'm very curious where you're from and what were you passionate about when you were a child and how these things started to manifest in your early years? Well, It's so funny because if you had asked me as a child, what do you plan to be when you grow up? It certainly would not have been a pastor. I am a pastor, not a pastor's kid, but a pastor's grandkid, which means that my mother was a pastor's kid. And and if you know anything about how that often goes, the patterns there, usually they either wind up in the church or they wind up not being able to stand the church. (laughs) My mother was closer to the latter. So I didn't really grow up in church at all, but I did grow up with parents who are very, are still very strong activists. And my mother was a leader, is a leader in the student nonviolent coordinating committee. And my dad is a poet and activist and a revolutionary. So having those two as parents, it meant we had meetings in the house all the time where they were organizing for the latest thing. I was first arrested when I was six years old in front of the <laughs> South African embassy. Oh my God. This, this is a first got back to basics. I was coming from a pastor. I was first arrested at six years old. <laughs> oh, exactly. wow. And I insisted on it because my parents were going, my sister, who's six years older, was going, but I wanted to be part of it too, because I thought apartheid was horrible. So, you know, it's very interesting coming up that way. And I think, of course, that infused me with a a sense of how to hone in on things that aren't right and to come up with ways to agitate to make them right. Justice was very much 
part mm-hmm. of me, but no, I thought I was going to be a doctor until okay. I realized I'm not so good or I wasn't such a great student of medicine. (laughs) And then I went to work on Wall Street for a few years and uh, that was very helpful, but it wasn't where I wanted to stay forever. Wow. Wow. That's a big, a big pivot from, you know, what you're saying from Wall Street and then all these having all these other things that you were passionate about. Uh, Were you ever liking, I started to thinking that I was going to be a trader and in, in the stock and in the, you know, and I thought I'd love it. And then it took me very quickly to realize there's no way like, I mean, as everybody, I like nice things. I like to have a comfortable, I use money to as a way of to have financial freedom and do the things I love, but I'm, I was never that attached to it that I could have a life in it. That's right. Yeah. Just didn't touch on any passions except to, you know, come to a place of comfort. But I went to UPenn, as you mentioned, and pretty much the default for people who graduate from there, especially because of Wharton, is is Wall Street somewhere. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a particularly brave move, but it was a good one because I learned a lot about finance and marketing and all sorts of helpful skills in the ministry that you wouldn't necessarily think of. But, you know, That's those are not true. years that are wasted, for sure. <laughs> and uh, no, absolutely. And was at this time already was something within like that voice within you telling you that maybe you wanted to get into ministry? I am very curious about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I had one of those fall off the horseman moments, even though there was no horse in this. So the Apostle Paul in the Bible has the story where he was doing something completely different. And then the voice of God came to him and he was inspired and he was like, whoa, okay, I'm going to change everything. And that kind of happened to me as well. I was, my, as I mentioned, my grandfather, who was also my best friend, uh-huh. uh, had me in church with him one Sunday. And at that point, he had pretty severe Parkinson's and was shaking and blind. And so he needed help getting to church. So I would do that pretty regularly. And as I was sitting there and watching the pastors prepare the communion table, the altar, I heard a voice say to me, you should be doing that. And I had never heard a voice before. Mm-hmm. It was, it, I have very rarely since, but it was such a transformative experience for me, I said, okay. And then just started looking up, how do you become a minister in the denomination? I learned things like you need to be ordained. I had no idea what that meant. I Uh I learned that you needed what's called a master's of divinity in my church anyway. And I was like, what is that? Divinity sounds like sorcery. You know, all Uh these things. I didn't have any of that knowledge, but I looked it up and saw that Yale had a program. And I was like, I guess I could go there. And uh, let me go to Yale. Like, oh, yeah, like you're so humble. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, they do have one. Let me just go. (laughs) Exactly. So I their application turned out to be due. This was a Sunday. And then their application, I think, was due on Tuesday. And I sat Mm. down and I worked on it and I needed letters of recommendation from undergrad. And it had been years since I'd been an undergrad, all that. And all the doors opened by Tuesday. I had a full scholarship to go to Yale and um, it worked that out. That is incredible. That <laughs> is incredible to link it back to the voice. And again, in, in now over 170, I lose track interviews. It's incredible. And it's not always from the pastor. I've had, you're my second pastor on the show. That voice, that inner knowing, that something else that is there, all in their own way, describe it. And, and 
I know that what you're doing is so inspiring because you ignite that in people. I think with your words, you try to ignite that. I hope that the podcast from whatever hears it ignites something in them that they can do it. But it's so beautiful when you hear that that story where you say, I heard the voice and then it was like impossible deadline mm-hmm. to meet pretty much. And then everything was easy. Yes. And then I wonder, we go back to that when they say, when things are meant to be, they should be easy. We shouldn't sweat it. What do you think about that? Um, <laughs> like it should, it, it should flow. That's right. That's right. And I think there are definitely lessons that we can learn from obstacles that come in our way. But when I do believe that when we connect our gifts to God's call or however we want to phrase that, when we find our calling, we find our purpose, that doors open. And, and I think that I don't believe in coincidences, I guess I'd say. That is great. That is great. So so you started your journey into, I mean, you took, I guess, intentional steps into becoming a pastor. And uh, I mean, you had, uh, I'm sure, a, a road with their challenges and all that, but then you eventually became the first woman appointed to serve your congregation as a pastor, as a senior pastor. That's incredible. What an what a inspirational thing for women in leadership and, and what we can achieve. You want to share a little bit of what how that made you feel? Yes, please. I mean, I think that part of what prepared me, and I, I've read some of, of your writing on, on women in leadership, and I think that a big piece of the challenges that we face really do prepare us for how to step into these spaces. So of course, if I'm going to be the first woman in this role, then that means that I'm the only woman in a lot of spaces. And I think Mm -hmm. I became accustomed to that pretty early on in my career and being able to take the skills, like to understand how to be the only woman at the table when everybody's drinking and acting up in a you know, board meeting or something. I mean, all these things that have become sort of secondhand knowledge to me have helped me to be able to step into a space of power and to own it while also trying to deeply balance my sense of humility uh, in this and and to say that, yes, I have gifts and I'm going to be okay to claim them, but I also recognize that those gifts aren't for me and, Mm -hmm. and, or at least not for me alone. And so I really do try to take what I've had, even that call experience I described to you. Yes, I heard the voice of God as I understand it. And I would love for other people to, I think what I heard is possible for everyone. And that's part of my ministry is to help people tap into the voices that are helpful in their lives that can help them to get to where they are called to be. Mm. That's very, very powerful. And in in between, you obviously, if somebody that gets uh, arrested at six years old and says it like almost like, uh, yeah, because these are things you are very passionate about, things you believe in, you are taking on very, very important matters and issues that these very particular crossroads, I think I'm not from the United States, but I've been here 26 years. So I always say never become a citizen, but I say I'm American at heart. I think I've said this on the show, but maybe not. I say I'm Italian by blood, Venezuelan by birth, American by heart. And I have two American citizen kids that, and, and, and I do believe that the country I arrived 26 years ago, it's a very different country from what it is today. And that makes me sad, regardless of, you know, the politics and all that. It's just the human beings. When you talk to people, 
how people react to you, how people react to ideas and diverging ideas, regardless of if you agree or not. And that it really makes me sad. And so, you know, you I know you're very passionate, of course, uh, about immigration and, and, and things that, that have gotten you into a lot of trouble, too, because uh, if I read correctly, you got into like... A, 50 most, tell me about the watch list. I, I tell our audience a little bit about that. Sure. So everyone knows what a hot button issue immigration is and has been for pretty much since this country's founding and especially since the 19th century. But it became really something quite dangerous and, and scary within recent years. And so we started to wonder as clergy, as faith leaders, what can we do in support of people who are seeking to have a better life in our country? And it started here in New York City, honestly, with my ministry, as people would come to me who would say, you know, I'm trying to get my relatives here. As as I'm sure you know, it is complicated and difficult. And um And clergy have a particular role to play in many of the different steps of part of the immigration process. But as the tension was mounting on the border, we thought, you know, folks are heading down there. They're, you know, setting up vigilante crowds and and it seemed really scary. So we thought maybe as faith leaders, we could go and, and offer support, if nothing else, witness and prayers to people who were at the border seeking asylum. So we went to, we set, set up a program called the Sanctuary Caravan. So this was at the time of the migrant caravan in 2018, 2019. And the Sanctuary Caravan was a group of faith leaders and other people who call themselves people of faith, who on both sides of the border, both in Tijuana and in San Diego, were offering various forms of support that we offer here in New York City, like a pro se clinic to help people to understand how to navigate the asylum process as they legally present themselves at the border. So some of that was on the more legal side. And then we also worked on just offering prayers and pastoral care, especially on the Tijuana side, but also as soon as people would come out of detention on the San Diego side, they were just literally dropped off downtown. And so the faith communities in San Diego and also the ACLU and a number of organizations really worked together to build supports in for how to help people. And if families have been separated because that also happened, we worked really hard to find ways to reunite people and to combat the what I would name as evil of, of harming people who are just trying to intentionally harming people who are just trying to have a better life. So because of that, and because I was one of the more outspoken people in the process, I wound up on this secret government watch list called Operation Secure Line. And this was a list of 50 journalists and human rights advocates. And then I was the pastor on the list. And because of that, they revoked my expedited border crossing privileges based on, I argue, my First Amendment rights of free speech and of religious freedom. So that turned into a thing. I am suing the government for that. And uh, it's a whole lawsuit and very complex and it's awful, but to try to do something like this. But 
I really think it's important for people of faith to be able to do what we do, which is love people and care for them. And if that turns into something that the government retaliates against us to do, then that's a problem that everybody I think should worry about. And it's not political. It's actually just, do you get to love? Do you get to witness? And I think the answer has to be yes. So that's what that is. And, and and I wanted to get into it, although I'm sure it's like uh, something that it's super fun to talk about. But I mean, first of all, how courageous and brave one has to be to kind of pursue, you know, a lawsuit that for what you believe is right. And that's very, very extremely courageous. That's how history has been made of, of cases like yours where, you know, somebody's pursuing something that maybe it's to the eyes of others. Like, why would they do that? You, and if I understand you have like, a lot of support from like eight, over 800 organizations that have signed a petition supporting you. So that that is really change. You know, you're definitely a change maker. And I admire that very much. How do you get the courage? Because I hear, I'm sure that people listening to this, even in agreement with you, it's like, yeah, but why would you, like, I don't have the courage to do that. How, what, what is it that triggers within us that makes you step up to that highest level? I think that for me, and I think different people who do what people describe as courageous probably have a few things in common and then some particularities to their experiences. So the first place I go is that I have a pretty clear process of how to work with my fears. And I realize that I I even think about this biologically in some ways. Our reptilian brains will do everything they can to protect us and to keep us safe. And through my faith, which says, Jesus says, through your faith, you can move mountains. You can do things that are pretty impossible. I have never thought about anything that I do to be either about me or for me or by me even. I feel like I'm a vessel and I work through a, a different power. So I, I tend to, as soon as I start to feel the fears setting in, I think a lot of people think faith is the opposite of fear. I think I nuance that to believe that faith is a companion of fear that helps us to think, okay, what is it that we are concerned about? What's the root fear involved here? And then once we can articulate that, instead of telling ourselves we're not allowed to be afraid, we can say, what will I do with that fear? And in many cases, it's it's a teacher. I think our, our fears are beautiful instructors for the kinds of things we need to pay attention to as we make bold plans, but they don't have to be the only thing we pay attention to. So being very intentional mm-hmm. with my fears, I think, is how I can have been able to do things that many people are like, how do you even hold that off? I'm like, eh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm not doing it on my own. And also I, I am thinking hard about the things that could go wrong, planning for them rather than letting them stop me. Mm, and, I, and I think you have one child. Are I you do. A mom? Yes. And how, how old? She is turning eight. Oh, my God. I cannot imagine what kind of example you're setting for her, because a lot of people say, you know, I have kids. I cannot do anything like that. And then you hear people that have kids and and, and, and I've interviewed other people say, because I have kids, I want to do things like that and show him what to stand for. And, you know, this is a very brave thing. I, I 
have, I cannot recall maybe the bravest thing in that sense that I've done it. I'm from Venezuela. And when my country came to the worst political situation we lived through, I actually pro started protesting, you know, and, and, and peaceful protest. And, and we did go to a protest where a lot of people got killed, mm. you know, with snipers and the government wasn't happy with people protesting. And, and, you know, of course, thank God, you know, I was luckier than others. But then the next time we had to go out, a lot of people were like, I don't want to go out because the government had achieved exactly what they wanted. And, you know, I said that was the one time in my life that you feel that higher calling, that higher thing. I say, if I don't fight, who's going to fight for my country? And a lot of us that were, you know, we come from middle middle class families that we probably didn't have the need to go. And, you know, and you always think it's somebody else's problem. Then I grabbed my rosary because I'm also a person of faith and I know the Virgin, a big believer on the Virgin Mary and say, you know, you're not going to die on, on violent things if you carry me. So I'm like, you're coming with me on this one. <laughs> and we went, but it was, and I knew my parents, it was hard for my parents, but I could also see something in them that I had never seen before, because this is really when you're facing such a, a big challenge and, and, and. You know, it's like there's no other way of solving it. So I thank you for all you do. And, and, and again, regardless of what the cause is, the fact that you're brave to raise it to discussion, I think that is very important, that we don't take anything for granted. Thank you. Well, and thank you for the ways that you're helping people to identify what to do in order to find their moments of courage and to have that encouragement. My, my daughter talks a lot. I, it's so wonderful. I love this age. Every age she is, is my favorite. Mm -hmm. But now that she's at this age, I get to learn more about her fears and what her anxieties and just how she processes all that. And what I've found is that she's developing these practices in how she's going to deal with them. And, and she gave me a phrase mm. that I, I hadn't thought about. She says, well, you know, I've learned to use my grit. And I'm like, well, what is the grit? And she says, well, part of the mm -hmm. grit is what says, go ahead and do this, even though you're scared. But the other part of the grit is, she said, the most important thing is that I, it says to me, believe in yourself. And that sense of belief, I think, is really, really important. If you believe in the strength and the power of the Virgin Mary to protect you when you are out there, then that belief is something to speak about. And in certain circles, I think what we believe becomes kind of difficult to talk about because not everybody wants to hear about faith or if or because, you know, they may have been through some rough things based on their own faith journeys. So I think it's really important to help people to know how we get our grit and mm -hmm. I love it. I how love we it. push through it. Yeah, I learned so much from her. I love that. And uh, so do you want to share? I know you're active on many fronts and many things. You're passionate on many things. What is the one thing or a few things that you want to share that it's, you know, it's like it's keeping you excited these days and in, 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 in activated? Well, I am... I have been through some rough stuff over the past, that's just an understatement, over the past X years and let's mm -hmm. say three, one with the, the concerns of ways that immigration has been so difficult, but also, so that was starting it. But then, you know, with the pandemic as a pastor in New York City, that was pretty hard uh, to say the least. I, I remember one day, 
I was with the number of clergy who were officiating for the services of remotely of people who had um, who were unhoused who had died during the pandemic and we were reading their names as part of a litany and so many of the people who died we what we would do and you know we would read a name and then so many of the people were John Doe John Doe and I just had to keep reading the name John Doe Jane Doe person Doe and and that something about reading those names really broke me and I you know all the things that it meant and I had a rough go of it and then probably around December of last year January of this year I it really turned around for me and and my life just became better than ever through a number of steps and I think that what as a faith leader, I've been able to pull out of that is that I am now very much motivated to help people to develop the techniques to go into these difficult spaces and then how to pull ourselves out of it or allow ourselves to be pulled out of it. And I think it's usually a combination of both. And to, no matter what is happening around us, develop a place within us that nobody but the divine can touch. And so now when I go into these difficult moments or as St. John Chrysostom described, like the dark night of the soul, that is, even if we're in these places where we feel like everything is really horrible and, and, and there will be those moments, I think for all of us, any of us who have had remarkable change in our lives know that our biggest change come out of these more more difficult moments. And so how is it that we can take struggles and and build the build the gifts out of them while acknowledging the struggles? I'm not one of these people who says, you know, if you have enough faith, you're not going to suffer. No, that's not true. Everyone does. But when we do, is there a place where we can go within us that that we can access the divine light or the breath of God or however we want to phrase it? And be present to that because it's always within us. And building practices mm-hmm. around that is now my, that's what I'm going to commit my life to is helping people to to access that. Mm, that's so beautiful and, uh, and yeah, inspirational for sure. And so that brings me, I, it's almost like an answer to my usual last question, which is, I always ask people, like, what makes them tick? And you've shared so many things with us that makes you tick. But, you know, I also, you know, know that we all have that one thing or place or thing we do to, like, makes us reconnect to our true essence. Is there anything you'd like to share other than what you share so far? Well, this is so not profound because so many people feel this, but I, I truly believe that when I connect to my breath, and mm-hmm. pay attention to where I am in that moment, as opposed to anywhere else my head might go, that that is my place that I can always come back to. And mm-hmm. I believe just as, as is taught in our faith that, that our life begins uh, at, at first breath. And that first breath comes from the divine. And in Christian tradition, we say that we draw our breath when the Holy Spirit is infused into our lungs. And the truth is, if you think of that as true, then that means that every single breath is new life. And 
that is super helpful to me when all kinds of other things are going wrong around me. I can say, well, yes, there's the pandemic. Well, yes, there's you know, suffering around me. Yes, there are people who are hurting, all this. But right now I have breath and I can give thanks for this body that has fought so hard for me for my whole life and has fought so hard I've survived a pandemic. And it has fought so hard that I sit here with in relative health. and, And as I take in that breath, I can take in that sense of gratitude. And as I exhale, I can try to let everything out that doesn't need to be in me. Uh, including the carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So that I think is is what keeps me ticking in in a way that mm-hmm. I can find joy no matter what. Not in every moment because feelings are feelings, right? I don't know why people are pursuing happiness as if it's something that we will feel all the time. I mean, I can feel tired one moment, happy another, but if I have joy, if I have joy, mm-hmm. then that's something nobody could take from me. Mm, well, that's very powerful. I can I can see how connected you are, how embodied you are, and, and that's all really, really incredible advice. And what I love the most is that you know, as a faith leader, if you think about it, most faith. I mean, I'm a Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I'm, I'm practicing Catholic, but I love to read about all faiths. And you know, I've read about Dalai Lama. I, I've read a lot of things, and most of all the practices go back to breathing. Mm-hmm. Everybody can agree on that. And a lot of, you know, the basics of all whatever people believe is look so everything you describe, it's being present, being in the moment, embracing joy, be grateful. And so I really thank you for leaving us with that message and and, and wisdom. And I know now why your congregation loves you and why you're making you know, change happen. And uh, you always have a spot here at Back to Basics to come back and wish you best of luck with everything. You're you're very courageous and, and I admire that. Thank you. And thank you for all that you were doing. It matters so much. And I'd love to come back. <laughs> thank you so much. And to everybody until a new episode of Back to Basics. Take care. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.